Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Always a pleasure to have you with us. We have a special program today with a special guest. Those in the Texas wildlife and plant community know Ricky Lennox well. He's also a great friend and ally of Dr. Dale's. Let's go to Dr. Dale Rollins now in the field with his special guest. Thanks, Gary. It's, it's always good to hear from you. And fortunately, uh, I'm in the field again today. I'm at the 28th Battalion of the Rolling Plains Bob White Brigade here about uh, 10 miles north of Brownwood, Texas. Now, a new location for us. And man, if we had some incredible weather, we're, we're moving into day three and really had some nice weather and got some sharp kids and, and really enjoying it. And one of our guests and one of our long time, one of my long time allies and friends and classmates is our guest today, and that's Ricky Lennox. Ricky is, uh, Ricky was, I was at Texas Tech from 1980 to 83, and he was out there about 82, 83, somewhere along in there. And we're going to spend some time with Ricky today. There are a lot of you out there, Quail Masters specifically, Bob White Brigade alumni, others that have come to Quail Field Days and so forth, that whatever level of plant literacy you have, being able to identify plants, is largely attributable to our guest today, Ricky Lennox. So, Ricky, it's good to have you aboard today. And uh, if you would, start off by just giving us a little background. Give us 45-second background on where you've been. And well, thank you, from. Dale. Uh, finishing up a 38-and-a-half-year career with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Started out at Goldthwaite, went to Snyder and, and Borden County, came back to Goldthwaite, and then the last 18 years in Weatherford. And where are you from, Ricky? Grew up at Coolidge. Most people don't know where that is. I tell them it's between Tewaukeny and Prairie Hill, and that usually doesn't help. So I tell, <laughs> them, tell them Waco, Mahia, Carsicana, right in the center of that. What county was it? Limestone County. Limestone County, okay. And so uh, you graduated from high school and moved out to Texas Tech, correct? Well, went to junior college in Carsicana, Navarra College, and then went to Tech. Uh, part of what got me interested in the range and wildlife field, I went there and um, had a, a letter from the dean, Dean Bersloff. And he said, come to Texas Tech. We want to visit with you and come on this day. And so we made a trip up to Lubbock, walked in there, and Kay, longtime secretary that just retired a few years ago, she said, can I help you? And I said, well, I'm here to see Dr. Bersloff. And she said, well, he's in Africa. But let me see who's in the building. And, uh, oh, he was, he's down at Cedar Clayburg now. Fred Bryant. Fred Bryant. A young Fred Bryant was in the building up on the second floor, and he told me to come in. I told him I wanted to take a wildlife biology career, and Fred said, that's good, but if you'll take a range management with a wildlife habitat option, we can get you a job quicker. And sure enough, he was right. Good advice. So I've, I've reminded Fred of that several times. And from there, when I graduated with that, about six months later, I got on with NRCS, and 38 and a half years later, retired in January. And in case we've got somebody that's not 
familiar with federal agencies. I mean, NRCS is common jargon to us, but exactly what does NRCS stand for? Well, the NRCS is Natural Resources Conservation Service. It's a agency in the U.S. Department of Agriculture formed in the middle of the Dust Bowl in 1935 as the Soil Erosion Agency. And I guess they thought that wasn't a good name because two years later, it was renamed the Soil Conservation Service. And then in 1994, to show that we work with more than just soil, it was renamed Natural Resources Conservation Service. And we work with farmers and landowners to help have a good stewardship of the land, fix any problems that they might have, give them alternatives, and they make a decision. And so you've been doing that, and you said you mentioned the county or the towns a while ago, Scurry County and Taylor County, and you wound up, and then when did you become, when did you get moved up, promoted, to become a biologist. All right, the first 20 years of my career, I was in the field offices as a range specialist. That was what my degree was in. And then in 2003, I put in for a vacancy for a wildlife biology position in Weatherford. And that's where the wildlife habitat option of that degree came into play. And so I've been a biologist for the last 18 or 19 years and 20 and a half years as a range specialist. Well, some of my early, in fact, my earliest memories of you, again, would have been about 1982 and up on the second floor of the Goddard building. We had kind of a local uh, shoot the bull place we called Gretchen's Lab. <laughs> and uh, I can remember you sitting in on some of those uh, discussions and pontifications that we might have had up there at that time. And then I went off to become a range specialist for Oklahoma State and I was gone four years. But then when I came back, the first time I remember running into you again was about 1989. We were on a, a range tour uh, there in Taylor County, I believe, and uh, I, re I remember it so vividly because it was a range tour, and this was a time when Old World Blue Stems were really becoming popular. And so y'all had the group of people, 60, 70 people, orders were to walk over to the, where this spar blue stem or old, some kind of Old World Blue Stem was planted, but on, in between the trucks and the blue stem was Harry Vetch. And uh, that made a big impression on me because as we watched, walked across that hairy vetch, I can remember seeing the little grasshoppers and so forth jumping up. And that was a light that went on in my head and said, if I'm ever trying to grow grasshoppers early, I'm going to try some hairy vetch. And so that's what we, one of the things we do at the Rolling Plains Square Research Ranch. So uh, what was, kind of what was your specialty on those local range tours? What, what were some of the topics you were dealing with? Well, I usually got to help with the plant identification, kind of a walking, talking Hold a plant up, what's its value to livestock, wildlife, quail, deer, turkey, dove. Um, habitat management, we did a lot of work on trying to sh help landowners visualize whether this is good habitat or not and what can be done to improve it if it's not good habitat. And since that time, Ricky, I started the Bob White Brigade in 1993. And as I recall, you came over, Steve Nelly at the time, one of your colleagues, maybe a mentor, was uh, one that taught the seed identification, the crop analysis that we do in the brigades. And I think you came over to help. And then uh, we won you over to where you became an indentured servant. And you came back in about the, maybe the 4th Battalion as a covey leader? 6th Battalion. 6th Battalion, okay. And so that's been 22 years ago. You've been a servant with the Bob White Brigade ever since that's that That's the full-time weeks I was there. Steve went to the 1st Battalion, and I was helping starting a little seed uh, analysis in Abilene at the time, getting quail hunters to turn in the quail crops, and we would analyze the seeds and work backwards to then manage for those plants that the quail were eating. 
And Steve was working with me and, and like you said, mentoring me well on that. And Steve brought me along to the 2nd Battalion. And then he brought me again to the 3rd Battalion. And the 4th Battalion, he said, you go and do it. And he didn't come back. And so I, I went to the 4th Battalion, stayed about half a day. The 5th Battalion, I stayed a night and the next day. And by the 5th Battalion, I think I stayed two or three days. And then I was a cubby leader in the 6th Battalion. And like you say, I've been to everyone since. And, and all of the buckskin brigades in North Texas, which I think was either 18 or 19 battalions of those. Well, we often tell people that come for an hour and you'll be impressed. Come for a day and you'll be amazed spend at least two days with us and you'll be hooked as an indentured servant to the uh, Texas Brigade. So uh, that opportunity and invitation is, is there to all our listeners. Uh, come and visit one of the camps. I know you'll be impressed. Send your son or grandson or granddaughter too. And uh, Ricky, I've, uh, I can't tell you how many times over the years that uh, I'd visit with somebody and they'd pick up their son or daughter at Bob White Brigade and they'd say, wow. I wish there'd been something like that available when I was a kid. And after I heard that about 10 years, well, I thought, well, we got to come up with an adult equivalent of it. In 2005, we debuted the adult version of that, and we called it Quail Masters. And I think you've been involved in every Quail Masters we've done. We uh -huh. probably had, I don't know, maybe 10 of those Quail Masters classes, maybe more. But you've been a key, integral part of all those. At each one, you get a name badge. And I think I've got at least eight name badges, so I've been, been to several of them. Now, you did make it a little easier on the adult versions. Instead of having a hard week, it's a weekend for three or four weekends spaced out over most of the year. And we get to go to different parts of the state, the High Plains, South Texas, at, you know, Rolling Plains. It's a, it's a great event. Hope we have one more of them before we both get too old. Well, it? that's one of the things I'll talk about. The uh, Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation is, is going through a new era. There's Congratulations to our new executive director, Brad Kubechka. So I have stepped down as executive director, but you hadn't got rid of me. I'll be serving as the director of outreach, and one of the programs that we hope to reconstitute in 2022 is the Quail Masters program because it was a very popular program, and I think I speak for you and Mr. Mills and anybody else that worked with us. We all enjoyed it. It was, right. it was always a great uh, opportunity to visit those great quail ranches and then also be able to teach and learn from the various participants that are in there. So give us an idea of what some of your subjects would have been and, and your approaches for teaching adults about plants. Well, we can help them because they're interested. They're mostly landowners who are interested in quail and they want to learn more about the plants. And plant knowledge is something not everyone grows up with. If you're in the business world, you may not see many plants. And it helps to be out on the ground with people that can help you identify them. So we start out with plant identification, then we work it into habitat evaluation, taking those plants and what can they do to benefit quail? What's their purpose? Nesting cover, loafing cover, food. And, and it, the light begins to turn on and they catch on and they take it and run with it. They go back to their home ranch and do projects and make a lot of progress in making their place better. But a lot of times after they attended one of those Quail masters, quail field days, uh, range days, whatever we were happening to, whatever the venue was, they'd walk away kind of shaking their heads because here me and you and Steve Nelly and others are spouting these plant names out because they're common jargon to us. But you know, your average landowner probably knows about five species of plants. He knows mesquite, he knows prickly pear, he knows juniper. And maybe side oats grandma, maybe one one or two others. But I often say that 
If plants were words, how literate would you be? Would you be a silver-tongued orator or a Neanderthal? And too many times all we hear is grunts coming from the audience like that. But I'm not saying they had an excuse, but we didn't have any good field guides for our part of the state. And if you get down to South Texas, there's a number of good field guides. You get out in the Trans-Pecos, there's some good ones. But we really didn't have one local to the Rolling Plains, the West Texas area, and uh, until about, uh, and you helped me with the year, Not probably 2014. 2014, all of that changed. And if you don't have a copy of Ricky's field guide, and, and I'm going to let him say the title of it, but if you don't have a copy of that, you're handicapped in West Texas because it's, and now this is a unpaid testimonial. It is the best field guide, hands down. And I've seen a lot of them, but uh, nothing nothing beats Ricky's field guide. So tell us a little bit about the book there, Ricky. Well, I got the idea for it from your cousin, Clint Rollins, range specialist with NRCS at the time up in the Panhandle. He put together a plant, uh, range plants of the Texas Panhandle. And I thought, man, we need something like that for North Central Texas, where I was working, the area of the state I worked. And so my supervisor at the time, he gave me the blessing to work on it. And we went forward and I started putting plants together, had a couple hundred, and eventually it wound up 324 plants. Forbes, grasses, and woodies. Nice photos, it's eight and a half by 11 inch paper. Uh, it's, um, oh, I don't know, if you, if you like good photos, there's 1,500 photos in there of the plants. And probably what's most helpful for the landowners, something that you don't get in many other wildflower guides or tree books is the value to the wildlife and to livestock. Is it used by cattle, sheep, goats, deer, quail, turkey? And you know, what do they use? Is it the seed? If it's a seed, then we've even got a seed photo there, a macro seed photo. And this book is not, it says North Central Texas. Range Plants of North Central Texas is the name, but it's actually in the Edwards Plateau, 90, 6% or 97% of the plants in the book also occur in the Edwards Plateau. Over 60% of the plant of the plants in the book occur in the coastal prairie. So it is a statewide book because so many of these plants are just common plants, but they're available or they grow all across the state. You know, I often jab, poke jabs at the county extension agents that I work, most of whom were not that interested in wildlife. They're interested in crops and other things. And, but wildlife would be a minor part of their job. But they'd have a poster hanging up over their desk that said, Common Weeds of Texas Pastures. And I'd go in there and chide them a little bit, and i said, You know, with a bottle of whiteout, we could change the title of that to Key Quail Food Plants, and it'd be the same plants. We came out with posters like that. That's right, we did. But most of the weeds is, through their eyes were actually desirable plants through our eyes kind of right. thing. I guess that's the message. Perception. Yeah. Um, I want you to, I want to de delve into a little bit, Ricky. How'd you get that book published? I mean, it had to be costly with all the color prints in it, so how'd you get it published? Well, I, I took the idea that the Noble Foundation publishes grass books and woody plant books, and they're not overly expensive, $20, $25. So I called up to Russell Stevens, another Red Raider graduate, and asked him where they got them printed, and he sent me the address, and I contacted him up in Oklahoma. And I went and to see what they would charge. And I was wanting the book to be the same cost as Clint Rollins' book. No cheaper, no more. $20 a copy. And the, uh, the price of the book, as they said they could do it, if we ordered, I think, 3,500 copies initially, they could do it for $15 a book. And then to 
that was the price, but how do we get the money? Um, I went around and solicited uh, donations from different groups. Uh, the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch for foundation kicked in $10,000 right off the bat, really quick. And this was back in the about 2010 or 12, maybe 13, probably 10 to 12. Quail Unlimited was still around, and several of the Quail Unlimited chapters, one in Houston, a couple in North Texas, contributed. Uh, by and large, though, the greatest amount of money that came in was from Park City's Quail. Over half of the book was given by Park City's Quail, and when you look at, and NRCS gave 4% uh, of the book. So the other 96% of the funds to print that book came from quail conservation groups. I'm always very proud of that. And uh, of course, I knew you were working on that book. And so I hit our board of directors up who the president at the time was Rick Snipes. And Rick's a big, Rick's a big uh, ally of yours and impressed and knows what the contributions you've made. And so it was a pretty easy ask from us, and I'm sure it was probably the same way from Park City's Quail and, and other people. Once we got the money, we went forward with how do we promote the book and how do we sell the book. And the I followed again Clint's uh, lead. He got the Soil and Water Conservation Districts to initially offer the books for sale in their office, and they're located in most NRCS offices. And at one time, I think there was over 125 soil and water districts all the way down into the valley of Texas selling the book. And you can maybe still find it in some of the NRCS slash SWCD, Soil and Water Conservation District offices. If they don't have it, uh, it's online or it's available as an online purchase from the Botanical Research Institute of Texas, commonly called BRIT in Fort Worth. They've got it, they will ship it to you. Uh, that's if you can't buy it locally, that's where I would suggest getting it. And the price being about twenty-five bucks, right? It, is, it went from twenty up to twenty-five. The soil and water districts were able to make about five dollars a book off of it, so it was good for them, and they they got the book out good for the pu public in the county. Well, then it's cheap at twice the price, and again, very valuable. You want to buy two of them: one for your coffee book, I'm sorry, one for your coffee table inside your house, and the other one uh, for the beside you in the pickup truck, so you can be able to increase your plant vocabulary, and it's a wonderful tool for that. Well, Ricky, beyond plant ID, I know at uh, both at Bob White Brigade and at Quail Masters, one of your specialties was habitat evaluation. So talk to us a little bit about that and some of the key points there. Well, we've got to know what the limiting factor is in, in good habitat for quail. Let's just focus on quail. If uh, something is limiting, then we need to fix it. But before we can fix it, we don't just start painting with a broad brush. You've got to identify what the problem is. Is it lack of nesting cover? Then it may be traceable to too heavy a stocking rate of cattle or, you know. So we, we look at what's the limiting factor. You're evaluating for nesting cover, loafing cover, tying in the food into that as well. And it's been a, a very helpful tool. Uh, we started out working with uh, quail and, uh, the quail the adult quail version, as well as the Bob White Brigade with the Habitat Evaluation Worksheet. It was uh, originally one Steve Nelly put together when he was involved, and we fleshed it out a couple of times. Kent Mills, yourself, and myself have kind of got it in a good form right now where it's really usable and easy to understand, 
And uh, it, it allows you to go through and narrow down to what the limiting factor is on your ranch. And then you can take steps to improve the nesting cover if that's what it needs. And uh, here we are on the evening of day two at Bob White Brigade. Tomorrow morning, day three, you'll have 20 kids out there. And again, talking about softballs and uh, how much little blue stem you got and so forth. So yeah. those are all, and, and I often uh, compliment the Bob White Brigade. I say many of the techniques that we use, Ricky and I and others, for training adults generate were generated from Bob White Brigade. And I, say, I jokingly say we just slow them down when we're teaching the adults. But uh, some things here, and it's not always child's play, but uh, things like the softball habitat evaluation technique and others. And, yes, uh, you mentioned Kent Mills, and shout out to Kent because I know he's been uh, – uh, your partner in crime on all these quail masters tours and i can speak for all the quail master graduates out there uh, just about the kind of special bonds that they're able to develop with the instructors and, and specifically with you and well, Kent on that. we've enjoyed working with you and i realized early on in my career that you were a little different cat <laughs> you uh sought out to involve many agencies you know back in the early days 80s and all NRCS kind of had their field days, may not invite extension, may not invite parks and wildlife, but you incorporated everybody. And that helped me to see the bigger picture of working together for the common good. Well, I think it was Woodrow Wilson said, I use not only all the brains I have, but also all that I can borrow. And so that was my situation. Ricky, I know something that uh, besides, you know, the common plants and so forth and how to evaluate the habitat, one of your niches, I guess, over the last five to 10 years has been the importance uh, of pollinators. So delve off into the, that may be a strange term to some people, but uh, it's certainly a buzzword, no pun intended, uh, if you're dealing with federal dollars and some things like right. that. The pollinators, there's a lot of them. We think of bees mostly, or maybe the monarch butterfly, but there's uh, 46 species of native bumblebees in the United States. And I think Texas got short changed because we only have nine species. The European honeybee was brought to the U.S. from Europe, and then we have just beetles and wasps, uh, bats. A lot of things can be a pollinator, and they're they're your ally in helping to ensure that we've got new plants. That flower gets visited, the pollen gets transferred, it's fertilized. We were able to show the kids today prickly poppy. We saw the the bright white flower with the yellow center. We saw a three pronged uh, pre flowering. Uh, bud and then if you look and find one that's round and has what looks like a burnt cigarette end on it that's after the flower was pollinated and matured and f fell away and now you're looking at the ovary with those golf ball dimpled seeds forming in it and we actually found a plant that was it had been broken over and the plant matured and we could pour seeds out in the hands of the cadets so that was a good good teaching tool well what are a half dozen plants that both uh are cross-fertilized, if you will, between uh, Bob Whites and pollinators. What are some of those common denominators? Well, what we like to see with the pollinators is a flowering plant in the spring, summer, and fall. You look at Engelman daisy, that's one that flowers early in the spring. Uh, it's going to make seed midsummer, so that's something quail would have available in the summer. But the pollinators, we need during their active season. They're active all but in the winter. And so we need those different flowering plants. Maximilian sunflower is a pretty good seed producer, good cover for uh, bobwhites. 
and it's especially the monarch and how it's so important. They're, they've almost got the monarch enlisted as a endangered species. And so if it does, that means that species is you know near collapse. One of the best plants we have for the monarch is the Maximilian sunflower. Flowers in set, late September, October, just when the monarch is head, heading south to Mexico. And it produces good seed for quail. Well, I often tout Bob White's as the canary of the prairie, but and the premise being that that if you're managing and achieving Bob White populations, odds are you're doing things that benefit a whole list of other bird species that are never going to be hunted. They're kind of riding on the coattails of the Bob White. Can we say that same thing about some of these pollinators or not? I think so. The Monarch especially has got federal dollars for cost share, several programs for Monarch habitat restoration, largely planting of milkweed and other uh, flowering plants. They need the milkweed to lay eggs on. The monarchs that overwinter in Mexico fly to Texas in the spring. They lay eggs on milkweed, antelope horn milkweed, green milkweed, and a couple of others, and then they die. Those eggs hatch a month later. That new monarch flies north, and by the time they get up to, into the Great Lakes, that's about three generations later, those monarchs spend the summer up there in the Great Lakes, then they fly down to Mexico. Never been there before. And that's when they come back through Texas in the fall, and we need to have those uh, fall flowering plants. And if you've ever seen a big patch of Maximilian, think of a Bucky's gasoline station. And those monarchs are flying by, and there's 10 acres, instead of gas pumps, of, of Maximilian sunflower reflecting that autumn sunshine back up into the sky. That's a Bucky's to a monarch. And so if it benefits the monarch, it benefits a lot of other pollinators and it benefits our wildlife. You were talking uh, earlier, we were commenting and, and you said something like, if we lost pollinators that X how many species of plants would disappear? There was a gentleman in 1901 said that if we were to lose all of the flowering plants, a thousand species, if we were to lose all of the pollinators, a thousand plant species would cease to exist. And if you look at the amount of, Thanksgiving is a great time. Look at all of the food that we eat that's beneficial from a pollinator. Pumpkins, you know, all of the, uh, all the vegetables. Nearly everything that we eat comes from a pollinator. Now, if you're eating grass like a cow, that's a wind-pollinated plant. Small grains wind pollinated, but corn, potatoes, but, uh, tomatoes, everything that has a flower has to be pollinated by something. So if we were to lose the pollinators, it drastically would reduce our food supply as well. And that's something, that, again, we're often just looking, looking way above Big things. But the more you dig into things at, at the soil surface or what they call the rhizosphere, there's a whole lot of intriguing things going on there that we really don't have much of a clue about. We're, we're small players in a big world. Yeah, absolutely. Ricky, I know there are a lot of uh, federal farm programs out there which are uh, managed through the sister agency, the Farm Services Agency, but things like EQIP and Rob Perry and Buffer Initiative, we don't have time to go into those tonight. But uh, who would the, if a person was interested in wanting to know if they could get cost share for a conservation practice, where would be their starting point? Well, they could go into the either the Natural Resources Conservation Service or on the other side of the building, the Farm Service Agency. They're located in the same building in the county seat of just about every county in Texas. And the NRCS will actually come out on the land, look at it with you. If you've got brush as your problem or if you've got a cropland field that you want to plant grass on, 
they'll they'll help advise you on what would maybe be a good grass or mixture of grasses for what your needs are. FSA will then take and uh, find a or they'll work a conservation the conservation plan into a cost share program, and NRCS actually helps develop the cost share program. But the, it's a joint entity. Uh, FSA has the the financial backing and NRCS has the technical side of it. So it's a mutual event that you can find out, go into the NRCS FSA office and ask about a program. 38 and a half years, that's a long 38 time. And a half. 38 and a half years. Flew by in a hurry, and like I've heard you say a lot, if you enjoy your job, you never work a day in your life, and I certainly enjoyed it. Well, good. Looking back over that 38 and a half year career, what would you list as a couple of your high points? Well, uh, a good wife and two fine sons and a granddaughter, that's certainly a, my high point. Um, the plant book was certainly good. Getting to work with a lot of landowners, both when I was in just one county or out in Snyder working Scurry and Borden County, I worked with the landowners directly. In my last 18 or so years, I was working in 52 counties, and so I would get to see a lot of different people working in conjunction with the local field office. Uh, I used to tell them that I get to go in see the ranch, have fun, and leave the field office to do the work. But that was a high point, getting to see. I might be in Bonham on Monday looking at a wetland and be down at Burnett on Tuesday looking at a deer operation, go over into the Blackland Prairie at uh, Cameron and work on trying to plant a native grass mix on the Blackland Prairie. So I got to see a lot of different things, and that helped helped me to learn a lot of plants, seeing those different regions. Well, I... I compliment you off the record on your work ethic and the fact that here at Bob Harper Brigade, which is 100 hours long, I've got a picture of you one time near our official clock, and it said 3.02 a.m., and I told you to close your eyes like you were sleeping, but you really weren't. Uh, again, we thank you on behalf of the Quail Masters and the Bob Harper Brigade. We really thank you for all the contributions that you've done. Uh, I know people like Steve Nelly and Kent Mills and myself, we, we appreciate you being a part of our team, and we've learned a lot from you. So you've had a great career. Now you've decided to step back. I think you might have been surprised by a retirement gift, right? Well, I was. I retired January the 2nd, and COVID was still going on. They asked me, you know, can we do a little retirement party? And I said, well, nobody's going to come during this COVID. So they, we didn't do anything in January. And Jacob Schaefer, the district conservationist in Weatherford, he kept calling and saying, can we, can we do something in February? No, I, I don't think anybody would come. Finally, uh, in April, they, they surprised me. Had a, well, we had a little party, and uh, James Lewis come walking in uh, with a 20-gauge Ruger over and under. And strangely enough, he and I at Bob White Brigade about four years ago were just talking about shotguns, and I would mentioned that I'd like to have a 20-gauge over and under. When quail come back, I'm going to go quail hunting. And he remembered that. And between him and Jacob Schaefer, they got the ball rolling. They, they t reached out for you. And I know a lot of people uh, contributed. And I, I wrote a lot of thank you notes. And I, we got to shoot that gun tonight. And I've certainly enjoyed it. Well, good. Well, it, it was a befitting treasure. Uh, and, and certainly all of us that, that had a part in that, we were proud to see you get it. What now, Ricky? I mean, you're just going to hang up your cap and sit back and watch TV, or what's your plans now? Well, I'm still writing a monthly range plant article that I graciously inherited from Jake Landers, great friend of ours. Well, he's a mentor to all people that love the land and rangeland. 
I've uh, been doing that for four years, and now I'm getting uh, paid every month for it since I'm retired. Uh, still write a couple of articles for Texas Wildlife Association. Hope to do a few more articles with them. Uh, Want to do some consulting, and if COVID slows down, I think the consulting will pick up a little bit for rangeland, wildlife consulting. I'm not going to retire and go away. I want to stay active, kind of like you've stayed active after your extension retirement. And in fact, it was at your retirement when Jake Landers first asked me if I wanted to take over that article. And I told him, I don't think I can do it, Jake. That's too big. About three years later, he said, he called me and said, I'm, I'm ready to give it up. Will you take it? And about then, I said, well, Jake, I think I'll, I'm ready for it now. So four and a half years later, still writing that one. Thanks to Jake for putting me into that. Well, you've always got your camera with you. And again, I don't know how many plant images you got, but I know it's a lot. It's a few. It's a lot. And uh, again, you've always got that. You've always got us looking a little bit beyond our knowledge of plants and then picking up a few new words, new species here back and forth. And again, I know I can speak to the quail masters out there that uh, had it not been, especially for you and, and Mr. Mills, their uh, ability to converse in plant language would be much less than this today. So you've made a big footprint. I've got to say, you know, Sir Isaac Newton once said that if I have seen further than others, it is because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. If you don't know Ricky Lennox, he is a giant, literally and figuratively. Uh, six four. Six a little four. over 300. Well, I wasn't going to mention your weight, <laughs> but uh, he's a big guy. And But hes I've always said he's a giant. He's a giant to many of us, but he's a gentle giant. He's a Don Williams kind of a guy. And uh, I've never seen him upset with anybody, and I'm sure he's had some opportunities over the years. But uh, he's, he's a great example for all of us. And so, Ricky, I just appreciate it. I, I know we'll be running across each other more or occasionally in the future, and I always consider it a pleasure. And I encourage you folks, anytime you can, have the opportunity to spend the day afield with a good botanist. Don't overlook it. You'll learn more about that day. You will be intrigued. Hopefully you'll be motivated to begin to speak the language of the plants. And then you'll be able to read the sagas that are written every day on the back 40 out there. So Ricky, I appreciate you being our guest tonight. And Gary, with that, uh, we're going to send it back to you. And I know you're a Red Raider too. We've been clapping all the Red Raiders and patting them on the back when you're one too, Gary. So uh, thank you for being a part of our Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. And indeed, a great program today for all Red Raider faithful. Thank you, Ricky Lennox, for all of your contributions and for your special efforts on behalf of Texas landowners and Texas wildlife through the years, what you've done in the past and what you continue to do to make a difference. If you'd like more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. There you will find current and past episodes of the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast for you to enjoy. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, thanking you for your time today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.